Hello and welcome. PNN, October 25, 2020. It is Sunday. My name is Brooke Hines. And uh, I've got a big old show for you tonight. I've got Rick Spizak with two interviews. He's uh, in the first interview. He's talking to an activist who has done some pretty intense direct action with regard to uh, nuclear arms and nuclear disarmament. This is old school stuff. And this guy has just been sentenced to uh, um, to uh, serve time for doing the right thing. Because that's what happens to the good guys. Then after that, we have uh, Rick also did another interview with a disability activist who I believe... We've had on the show a couple of times, um, uh, Faith Olivia Babas, I think I'm saying that right, and uh, she's going to get us up to date on everything that's going on with regard to disability rights in Florida right now. And later in the show, we have Janine Moloff with the Justice Report, and she'll be talking about COVID and Trump's response to COVID and uh some of the choices that have been made and where that has left us. So it's intense. We're in an intense time right now. If you're on social media, like, or if you've got friends or family, you are probably feeling the tension that everyone is feeling right now. And I sense it from every single direction. It doesn't matter if you're a, a, a mainline Democrat or a progressive or identify with a democratic socialism or, or if you're on the other side of the spectrum, the other guys, you know, libertarians, conservatives, whatever, everybody has their hackles up right now. It is super freaking tense. Um, And it's going to be that way until the election. And then, you know, if everything goes well, then some of those tensions are going to recede. And, uh, you know, maybe we have that to look forward to. I certainly hope so. Because we have a lot of work to do. And that's what I want to say in setting up the rest of the show, is that we're sitting on the precipice of a very difficult time personally and as a social group as a society as a country as a political entity it doesn't really matter at this point um let me put it this way there's nothing that you and i can do to avert what's coming at us in the next few months. Uh, The repercussions of this pandemic are getting ready to hit us economically in a way that is completely unfamiliar to us. Now, I grew up with my grandparents who lived through the Depression, so I grew up with a lot of that Depression-era kind of mindset And I don't think a lot of, you know, I'm in my 50s, you know, I don't think a lot of people who are younger than me uh, had access to that kind of ideology. And if you didn't have access to it, let me tell you, it is a whole different way of thinking. 
Like I, my parents grew up during the depression. Okay. We didn't have things around the house like foil or Ziploc bags. Ziploc bags were considered a luxury that, that you just don't do, you know, things like that. Um, my mother used to tell me stories about, and she would teach me things like how to dumpster dive. And it was one of her favorite things was to, uh, even when we had money, she loved to dumpster dive. She loved to go see what was being thrown away at the back of the grocery store and bring home like a box of bananas that are half done for or whatever. It was her favorite thing in the world. It was like getting away with something. Um, it's kind of like when I give my dog a treat, when I give Daphne a treat, she takes it from me and she runs like she stole it. You know, and that was that was kind of the vibe that that my mom used to have. She also had this manner of uh, like she had developed all of these ways to to deal with the depression. Uh, And one of the things she did being a Floridian who lived on the coast is she would go hang out with the guys who are fishing and talk them up until they like handed over a fish or two. So she would have something to eat by flirting with the guys who were fishing off of the jetty and she taught me how to do that when I was a kid and she just thought it was the funniest thing in the world and now I'm the, I'm like uh, you know I can kind of see where that skill came from you know uh, I've got friends who have not been paid in forever who've not worked in forever and have not seen any unemployment, have not seen any stimulus. And we have a Congress that is assiduously ignoring the people and the economic strain that we are under. We are fixing to lose our homes. We are fixing all of us are on the precipice of possibly getting sick. Um, some of us have whole families to care for and uh, and we don't know what we're going to do and we need a responsive government we need people there and we need to feel like people have our back and we don't have that right now today on twitter uh senate minority leader chuck schumer uh did a he eventually deleted this tweet but he did this thing where he said uh Here's this terrible story of this veteran who uh, lost his job, lost his home, got sick, couldn't get his medication, and then committed suicide, killed himself. And Chuck Schumer offers the moral to the story is what we have to do is we have to pass some legislation to curb uh, to to curb suicide it was suicide prevention, which had to do with some kind of like social media surveillance, you know, looking for people looking for keywords in your social media postings. And what are they going to do? Like send, send someone over to like, you know, catch you with a butterfly net or something. It's the most ridiculous thing ever. And he got ratioed all to hell and finally took it down. And the point is, is it the man who, sadly committed suicide did so because he lost his he lost his job and he didn't have any money and he couldn't have a place to live and he was sick and he couldn't get his medicine 
what would have prevented that suicide is stimulus money. What would have prevented that suicide is a humane safety net for the people, which we don't have right now. Yeah. And that goes back a long way. Um, that's not something that that's not something that Trump did. All right. That's something that actually Bill Clinton and Al Gore did. And I, I freaking loved those guys for a while. You know, then came uh, reinventing government and ending welfare and uh, all of that stuff. As a kid, you know, I grew up in poverty, in extreme freaking poverty. Uh, adopted by my grandparents. They were both disabled and on social security. When I was a child, we were, uh, we had to blend families with, uh, we had to blend with another family that had aid to families with dependent children. So we were actually sharing a welfare check and we were sharing food stamps and we were sharing food from a program called Commodity Foods, where you went to the uh, county seat you know, where you got your, uh, the, the tag on your car and they would give you a box of food and it would be this, like, um, the kind of stuff that the military would use, like, like military surplus. So you'd get like a bunch of tang and some, uh, it was called oleo instead of butter or margarine. They called it oleo, um, and peanut butter, which was basically the one thing that, you know, kind of kept us going through all of that. Um, we don't even have that sort of thing now. We don't have a commodity foods program. We have these privatized uh, uh, second harvest food banks, you know, places, places like that to go to. That is what our social safety net looks like right now. Uh, essentially, we don't have aid to families with dependent children. It depends on on what state you live in, what kind of uh, safety net you have. Again, because that those programs were put back to the states in block grants, and the states can do whatever they want to do with them. And they've decided maybe we are not going to do that. And by the way, that's what's happening with COVID money right now. You know, North Dakota, I mentioned this later in the show, North Dakota is uh, one of the, has the highest infection rate for COVID on the planet. And right now, North Dakota has a bunch of money to spend on public health for COVID. And they're taking that money and using it, giving it to the fossil fuel companies to do more fracking. It's absolutely sickening what's going on right now and so people are tense people are not happy and we're focusing all of that tension I think a lot of us are we're focusing all of that tension on Donald Trump and the Trump administration and that is one part of it it's not all of it what's going to happen when Trump is out of office is we then are going to have to deal with all the fallout. We have to clean up the mess after this party. And that's if, that's if Biden gets elected, you know, and that's not even, that's not even written in stone. So really, I think what's going on here 
socially in a very large sense is that the country is officially going into a depression. And I mean that not just economically. What I'm sensing from my interactions on social media, from my interactions with family members, from my interactions with friends, is a, a depression on a grand scale. Absolutely grand scale. And people feel abandoned. When people feel abandoned and they feel like they don't, there's no hope, uh, you know, things start to go haywire. So, you know, we're going in, we're going into this election and we're going into Halloween. So, you know, there's your scary story for Halloween. Um, and, you know, what I want to say is that what we have is each other. And we can't be turning on each other right now. Now is not the time. Now is the time to come together. We need each other right now. And we need people like Rick. And we need people like Janine. And we need people like uh, Patrick O'Neill, who is coming up right now. to bring to the attention of the public the critical issues of the dangers of nuclear weapons. Sir, welcome. Thank you for having me, Rick. Uh, Patrick, could you talk a little bit about how you first got involved in activism? Did you start in your youth, your early manhood? Uh, when, when did you take on the responsibility of helping your society be a better place? Well, you know, I, I grew up uh, in, in in New York, New York City, not not in Manhattan, but in, in uh, the Bronx and Queens. And it, I was born in 1956, so I began to come of age as the Vietnam War was progressing. I was aging closer and closer to draft age, and the draft was moving closer and closer to me. And uh, <clears throat> my mother became a widow at the age of 23 with two preschool-aged sons when my father died in a construction accident working on a skyscraper in Manhattan. He was only 28 years old. So my mother experienced death uh, at the age of 23 of of her husband and the father of her children. And that trauma uh, came before the Vietnam War. That was in 1960. But as my mother raised my brother and I, uh, she realized that the war... Uh, might try to make, you know, that the Pentagon and the uh, Selective Service folks wouldn't have their eye on my brother and I as we got closer to draft age. And uh, for those who were old enough to remember watching the television news during the Vietnam War, it's kind of like how some some TV stations do the, the COVID numbers now, and they list them on each day on the show and give the overall number of deaths, infections, how many new, new cases today. Well, during the Vietnam War, there was literally two ticker tapes on the, um, on the show, on the news, when they were reporting about the war. And one of them was how many soldiers died that day in Vietnam. Now we're talking only U.S. soldiers. And how many U.S. soldiers has, had died during the course of the war. And these numbers, of course, 
were increasing and increasing and increasing as the war went on. And I had these memories of my mother saying when the news was on uh, many times, uh, I guess prepping my brother and I, who were still young teenagers when this all started, um, and actually we weren't even teenagers yet, she would say, she would say uh, my mother Ann O'Neill would say, uh, if this war is going on when you boys are old enough to be drafted, I'm going to take you to Canada. We're going to Canada. And, of course, I knew what that meant, that people were, who were, you know, not wanting to go, go to the war and kill people were going to Canada to avoid the draft. And she was basically saying, I'm not going to lose my sons to this war that I don't believe in. My mother was not an activist. She didn't carry placards and go to demonstrations and, and, and such. But she was somebody who uh, basically made me understand that dissent was an acceptable thing in a democracy. And uh, that's important, really. And uh, I mean, I might go into a little bit about that, but one of the things that the Pentagon and basically our entire government hates the most is dissent, dissent of any kind. Right. Um, it's a remarkable thing. My children were literally, I have eight children, Rick, six daughters and two sons. And uh, every one of them, every one of them is a peace activist and a Black Lives Matter activist and a social justice activist. That's and awesome, sir. Awesome. Several, I've, been, I've, been, I've done civil disobedience and gotten arrested with my children. And uh, I've tried to raise them to understand that, that, that this is the consequence of faithfulness is that you might, you might face uh, you might face arrest and I, my kids have seen their parents their mother and father in handcuffs enough and my, my children will of course be visiting me in prison pretty soon when I go to prison now uh, in, in, in uh, about 11 weeks but they've seen their parents uh, under arrest they've seen their parents in court they've seen their parents on trial and they understand that uh, that dissent is a necessary component of a democracy but also they understand that um, that uh, uh, there's consequences for that, that there are consequences for that. So um, just hold on one second. I'm giving my daughter lunch. I'm, she's sure. At home school. <laughs> so, no problem. I have to sort of bounce that. But anyway, my my mother instilled in me a healthy healthy disrespect for uh, for the United States government. And you know, during the war, I had a considerable amount of uh, intellectual curiosity you know as a little boy i was reading the new york times i remember i used to cut my chemistry class in my junior year of high school and go off and buy the new york times to read about watergate and the resistance to the vietnam war and so you know i kind of uh, got more and more distrustful of this government and and uh then in 1977 i moved to north carolina where i live now to work with a catholic priest at a, at a parish mm -hmm. in Greenville, North Carolina. And he was good friends with the Berrigans, Daniel and Philip Berrigan. Phil's wife, wife Elizabeth McAllister, who is my co-defendant on this, this action that I'm going to prison for. And, uh, you know, he was on a first-name basis with them. He introduced me to the people I had only read about in the New York Times. Uh, they became my friends. And, of course, uh, 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 I, I remember when... Father Charlie Mulholland, the priest I lived with, who we named our Catholic worker house after where we live now, he came to visit me 
uh, on Easter Monday one year when I was in federal prison in Atlanta, Georgia for a previous charge. This will be my fourth federal prison sentence. And uh, when he came into the prison visiting room, I introduced him to the inmates and the guards as the man who's responsible for where I am today. (laughs) 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 So it was this little, little balding uh, Catholic priest that was about five foot six who, who kind of introduced me to, uh, to the fact that you could live a faithful life and part of that faithful life would be resisting evil. And, uh, I certainly consider war to be, uh, uh, Maybe the greatest evil we face as a as a human family, and nuclear weapons are, in the context of that, uh, I, I, I can't wrap my mind around the fact that people in this country can can look at the situation we're in with nuclear weapons that can basically end the human experiment, and there's very little opposition to that. It's it's a lonely thing these days to be doing anti-nuclear work. It's not like during the Cold War. It's not like during during the 1980s when we had Reagan scaring everybody. But even though Trump is kind of scary, you see very, very little resistance going on. Very little. And um, and I guess that's the reason why, uh, why I'm in the situation I'm in, because I wanted to bring the message that we can't ignore nuclear weapons. And so I don't know if that answered your question, but anyway. It, it did. It did. Uh, I recently uh, read uh, Mr. Ellsberg's book, and uh, it which really we, which, we carried, which we carried with us into the base. But I we, we took a copy of Ellsberg's book uh, into the, the uh, naval station Kings Bay and left it outside the administration building of the uh, of the Trident base, and, uh, and it was in evidence at our trial. That's wonderful. That's wonderful. One of the many important gestures that you made. Um, if I could ask you, before we tell your story, could you talk just a little bit about the history of plowshares? Well, again, we go back to the Berrigans. Um, I really consider Phil Berrigan and uh, his wife, Elizabeth McAllister. Phil died in 2002, and Daniel Berrigan, who died in 2015, I think, um, I consider them uh, having equal status in this country with uh, with Martin Luther King. I think they were they basically uh, they actually they just made it acceptable for people of faith to get out on the picket line and to march against war, against nuclear weapons, against U.S policy throughout the world uh, uh, and to, to, to make that part of the religious experience for people of faith. And they really changed the dynamic of how many Catholic Christians and many Christians and many non-Christians uh, took, took, the, took the approach they took to, to uh, working against war and injustice. Uh, and, you know, that was coming right out of the civil rights movement. So, Phil, you know, worked in New Orleans as a as a as a, a priest in the Josephite order, uh, working against against uh, segregation and against Jim Crow. His brother Daniel was a Jesuit, and uh, Dan Dan was uh, more of an academic, as Jesuits are. But uh, he listened to his brother Phil, and the two of them decided in uh, 1968 to 
to do the, the second draft board raid. Phil had been involved in the first one in 1967 called Baltimore 4. But Daniel joined him at Catonsville, Catonsville, Maryland, in 1968. And it was called the Catonsville 9. And nine people, I think there were four priests and two nuns and three lay people, um, went into a, a selective service office in this Maryland city, removed all the 1A files, of people uh, scheduled to be sent to Vietnam, brought them out into the parking lot in a, in a wire basket and set them on fire with homemade napalm as a protest against the war. And that began, uh, that was really a kind of a tipping point in the anti-war movement when you associate, you know, something very different in the lives of people in clerical collars and nuns and habits than them getting carted away in handcuffs. This was a very remarkable period and that was very divisive in the church and among a lot of people of faith should priests and nuns and ministers of all kinds be doing things like this should anybody be doing things like this but uh it sort of what it did was i think is it 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 it, 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 it certainly encouraged enormous discussion about about the horrors of the vietnam war um because once the attention was focused on these actions the participants in them you know, like I have now, I had an opportunity to speak about why they're doing what they're doing, why they're going to prison, why they're taking the actions they're taking, why they're destroying property, as the government would focus on, and, and how, how is that a legitimate means to protest? And so it began, uh, it made people think, it really made people think, it jolted people, in fact. And so Phil and Dan worked on this anti-Vietnam stuff until 73, when the war finally, you know, finally uh came towards a conclusion uh, after somewhere between three and four, you know, three and four million North Vietnamese were slaughtered, almost all of them civilians, and uh, and 55,000 U.S. troops had died, including the co-pilot of my father-in-law in a helicopter that my father-in-law was flying. And, uh, uh, you know, once the war sort of, you know, sort of the anti-war movement sort of died down, people who had, had really worked hard against the war didn't want to see the momentum of the anti-war movement fade into oblivion. They wanted to keep the movement against war alive, even though there wasn't an active war that the U.S. was participating in. So basically, Phil Berrigan, I think, was the brainchild behind this, um, started to look at nuclear weapons, started to look at U.S. invention, in, you know, intervention in Latin America, and other parts of the world started looking looking at the global arms sales that were uh, were basically orchestrated by by U.S. corporations, and realized there's a lot to work on here. And so the anti-nuclear movement really uh, was where the movement shifted. Uh, and I'm talking about the Catholic left and the religious left, but then it shifted from the war to 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 opposing nuclear weapons and to opposing U.S. intervention. Uh, and to uh, and to working against uh, global arms sales, among other things, and uh, and all those things happened. You know, the, the Civil Rights Act was signed, the Voting Rights Act was signed, the Vietnam War ended, and so this was a new phase, and this really began in the right right in the mid 70s. It came to fruition about 75, 76, and then what uh, Phil Berrigan and his wife Liz did is they moved to an intentional community, which they called the Resistance Community. It's called Jonah House in Baltimore, Maryland. And out of Jonah House, 
there was enormous amounts of people who went there to live and to join that community and to to basically conspire to uh, to do nonviolent direct action against U.S. imperialism, for the lack of a better word. I know people don't like that word imperialism, but it's it's hard not to say it applies. And uh, out of that grew. In 1980, 40 years ago, uh, 40 years ago in September, it's just this past September, the Plowshares Movement, uh, and the Plowshares Movement was sort of a, a, uh, a, a you know, sort of a, an extension of the of the draft board raids, but instead of raiding selective service offices, the Plowshare Movement went to uh, bases where there were nuclear weapons, to factories uh, where they were building nuclear weapons. To uh, to corporate headquarters of of uh, of the military industrial complex, various U.S. corporations and Plowshares actions involved again uh, uh, violating the property rights of the uh, of the war makers. Uh, people would take hammers to the components of nuclear weapons, and sometimes the computers that were in in offices that were used for planning nuclear weapons or nuclear war. Other times on on, uh, on on planes that were nuclear capable, uh, and, uh, uh, and hammered on them with household hammers, and they used the uh, verse from Isaiah. Uh, and if you ever go to New York City and you happen to be on First Avenue, right in front of the United Nations at 44th Street, there's an entire wall, a granite wall, on the west side of First Avenue, and on that wall is inscribed. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares, their spears into pruning hooks. One nation shall not lift sword against another, nor shall they study war anymore. And that actually takes up a full city block in New York City. If anyone lives in New York City, you've never seen it, you should go look. And that scripture passage in Isaiah became the, uh, the underpinning for the plowshares movement. We basically took hammers, went into these nuclear facilities, and, and symbolically... Uh, disarmed uh, weapons of mass destruction, and so that's where the uh, that's where the plowshares movement came from. And there's been more than a hundred plowshare actions in 40 years, and people have served uh, hundreds of years in jail and prison as a result of that. I'm I'm about to serve uh, 14 months in prison for a previous plowshare action. I served 26 months in federal prison, and many people have served much longer than me. Well, Patrick, uh, thank you so much for that explanation. I, I'm sure there are just at least one or two people out there that didn't know the derivation of plowshares. Now, could we skip ahead to April 4th, 2018? Well, um, after approximately well, more than two years of planning, uh, and what happens a lot with plowshare actions is that people who are interested in joining a community in an action, come together, and um, and they 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 have a retreat, which is a you know it's a it's a religious gathering in which uh, uh, prayer and discussion uh, takes place, and uh, the people who come to those retreats are either people who have previously done plowshare actions or are interested in, in in one for the first time, and what happens is the group sort of gets together for three or four days. Uh, and meets and starts to explore the idea together and pray about it and using the scriptures for that reason too and and then the group decides to come back again and 
a month or two and do it again. And, and what happens is, you know, you you, um, you gather and you meet, and then as the group sort of coalesces together and agrees on this purpose together, uh, um, then plans start to be made uh, in addition to the... Well, Phil Barbie used to always say you have to prayerfully prayer, you have to prayerfully plan, and you have to also criminally plan. You've got because you're 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 committing a criminal act, and you've got to plan it. You have to. That's why that's why we get get convicted of conspiracy because we're conspirators. And so he said, you do both of those things, but once you're prayerfully prepared, uh, Phil would always say, um, God will open doors to you. Don't sweat the details. And Phil was a deeply, deeply faithful person who really believed that the hand of God was in, in every, in, you know, at the, at the crux of these actions. So the interesting thing about our group of seven people um, uh, <clears throat> is that the seven of us came together, four men and three women, uh, Claire Grady from the Ithaca Catholic Worker in, uh, in upstate New York, Martha Hennessy from Vermont, who was the granddaughter of Dorothy Day, who founded the Catholic Worker Movement, co-founded it in New York City in 1933. Wow. Um, yeah, and, and Elizabeth McAllister, who's you know, one of the
Trident site, but also Tridents that are owned by by the United Kingdom. Uh, even though it's obvious that Tridents, it's common knowledge that Tridents are only the only purpose of them is nuclear. Uh, they would neither confirm nor deny the presence of nuclear weapons. So we only received the six months trespassing charge of which we were convicted. So, so Carmen, Steve, and Liz went to that bunker. They they cut through a couple of fences and got inside very close to the bunker, and then. Uh, I guess some silent alarms or something went off and they were interdicted uh, interdicted by the United States Marines who were guarding these bunkers. Uh, uh, Claire and Martha went to the administrative headquarters of the Naval Station Kings Bay. They put crime scenes crime scenes uh, crime scene tape on the uh, on the doors, the door to the administrative building. They spray painted love your enemies on the ground. They threw blood on the ground as well. And they taped up an indictment of the base for international war crimes because of uh, the nuclear weapons there, taped it on the door. Mark and I, Mark Koval and I, went to, uh, we went to a, what we call the missile shrine. But uh, this, is, this is something that's hard to imagine. But on Google Maps, we actually found a missile shrine on the base. It was a place where the U.S. Navy has built statues of weapons, mostly nuclear weapons. But literally, there's a whole place when you come into the base, and there's all brick wall there, and the, the, name, the name of the base, and flags, and all this stuff. And there are actually life, you know, life-size statues of nuclear weapons. Uh, and there's lots of them. There's about wow. 10 statues of nuclear weapons there. And in the middle, the highest and the biggest one is the weapon that's on Trident submarines. It's called the Trident II D-5 missile. Um, people don't know much about the D-5 missile, but I've been working in opposition to it since the mid 1980s, late 1980s. And uh, it was the most, uh, it was the most uh, um, unsettling deadly um, step that the United States made in the arms race when it introduced the D-5. The D-5 is, without a doubt, the deadliest weapon ever made. Um, first of all, it was, it was very destabilizing to the Cold War because the D-5 missile is a first-strike weapon. As you probably know, or maybe your listeners know, the United States has a first-use policy. We have never signed, which some nuclear powers have signed, a statement saying that they would not use nuclear weapons first. The United States not only has a first-use policy, but we also have scenarios which developed under the Trump administration on our nuclear policy review two years ago that the United States now has protocols in which we will use nuclear weapons in response to conventional attacks. So uh, the United States has a first-use policy. And so the Trident, the reason it was a first-use weapon was because it was highly accurate to within 100 meters of its target. The logical question to ask is, why does a nuclear weapon have to be accurate? If a nuclear weapon falls in any part of Manhattan, it'll kill 5 million people. It doesn't matter if it hits Midtown or not, because of the destructive capability of it. So what, of course, the message that sent to the Soviet Union at the time was, we have a weapon that can take out your weapons before you use them. That's the nature of strike weapons, that you can stop the retaliatory capacity of the enemy. And that's a very unsettling thing during the Cold War because the whole idea of mutually assured destruction depended upon the fact that one side could not prevent the other side from retaliation. The Trident 2D5 allowed us to have that superiority. 
and that weapon system has been, I mean, you know, I can't, I can't even associate the word defense. I mean, I, I liked it better when we called the Pentagon the War Department, you know, instead of the Department of Defense. But even if you were to use the word defense, you know, and saying, okay, me and this soldier in a field and we're both shooting at each other, defending ourselves against the other one, you know, maybe you can justify the use of the word defense. But how can you call something defensive when if it's dropped on a city, it will destroy every living thing in that city? That's not about defense. That's about wanton slaughter. I mean, we try to, we call the nuclear weapons, basically, we compare them to the Nazi crematoria. Uh, instead of bringing people to the crematoria, uh, you send the crematoria to them. It's incinerating people by sending the crematoria to them. And so these weapons were, you know, diabolical and horrible. And so uh, when I got to the missile shrine with Mark, we spray painted the words idle, blasphemy, uh, and other things on the ground. I took a bottle of blood, human blood. I threw it on the logo of the base, and then we used hammers uh, to uh, to smash as many idols as we could. And so the uh, uh, I hammered on all sorts of things at this missile shrine. I did try to. I did have some hope that I was going to be able to bring one of these statues down. But uh, when I swung, I got a, a, a friend of mine, Shane Claiborne was involved with a, he's one of the founders of the Simple Way community in Philadelphia and sort of a rock star of the evangelical left. He he got some Quakers together or, or joined them and they were making a gardening tools and hammers out of melted down guns. And I asked him to send me a couple of those things, which he did, and I said, I'll put them to good use. And I used uh, one of those, but when I hammered on the idol, the D5 missile uh, statue, uh, the hammerhead broke off and my, my hand went hit I hit it and it was made of solid cement. So uh, I couldn't, it was a formidable idol, let's just say that. <laughs> so so when, the, when each of us was finished with what we were doing, we awaited arrest. In the case of, of us at the missile shrine, Martha and Claire eventually came and joined us and the four of us had to sit there for about two hours before we were arrested. The police kept driving by seeing us but they were more interested in the other three who had gone to the bunkers. And not till a long time afterwards did they finally uh, come to us. And that's the end of part one. We are headed right back into part two. Rick Spizak, Patrick O'Neill. Yeah, ladies and gentlemen, let me welcome back Mr. Patrick O'Neill of the Kings Bay Plowshares 8, correct? 7. 7, okay. Well, I do. I do, sir. I, this is so marvelous. You know, it, it troubles me to no end that the, the anti-war movement has seems to have been uh, uh, disappeared because there are so many other horrible things going on with the overreach of American imperialism. The Defense Department of... Uh, this administration is is terrible. The incarceration and, and theft and kidnapping of children, and unfortunately, the the terrible insult to humanity that is nuclear weapons, ha basically goes as as you well know, sir, largely unobserved. Um, obviously, you are motivated to take a stand like this 
to try to bring attention to this horrible, horrible crime against the future that is nuclear weapons. Um, why don't you go ahead? You, you you had told us your story where you were just being arrested on the on the base. Go ahead, tell us what happened next, sir. Well, one of the things that happened. I'm going to skip ahead a little bit, but one of the reasons why we received pretty stiff prison sentences. I received 14 months. Liz McAllister received almost a year and a half, which she got credit for time served because she stayed in jail until her sentencing. Father Steve Kelly just received 33 months as his sentence, almost three years in prison. Also, he's almost done with his sentence because he never got out of jail. As I did, he didn't get out on bond. But one of the reasons that the sentences for us were so severe is that the U.S. Probation Office said that the seven of us risked death. Risking death is a very, very serious um, aggravating factor, what they call an enhancement which means that you get higher guidelines for prison because you risked death. Never before in a plowshare action in federal court, when there's probably been 50 trials or so, I don't know, maybe it's 40 trials in the last 40 years, never before had there been a case where the federal courts had, had charged the defendants with risking death. And they meant that we risked our own death by going in the, in the, you know, in the cover of darkness onto this, onto this base. But the point I was making is that when the police finally came to arrest us after we sat there waiting to be arrested at the missile shrine for more than two hours, the first police officer who actually approached us without a gun, uh, leaving a whole lot of other police officers behind, he walked up just by himself uh, to the four of us who were sitting there waiting to be arrested. And we had yelled to him, uh, we come in peace, we're nonviolent, uh, we have no weapons. And so he walked up and he approached us and he cracked a joke. He said, now you all know you're in a bit of trouble, don't you? And uh, he made us laugh. So uh, I tried to make that argument in my sentencing statement last Friday when I was sentenced that that, uh, that officer who approached us uh, did not have any fear of us, nor did we risk any death. But anyway... Um, we did practice role play in our encounters with the police and the security people to make sure that we could assure them that we were no threat. So that was what I was talking about at that time. Sure. You know, I have to ask you, you know, clearly you're a man who thinks deeply and long about his actions uh, to bring this issue to the attention of the public. When, when we see our society who values... Uh, certain kinds of people a certain way uh, when, for example, you might steal hundreds of millions of dollars and uh, get treatment like uh, going to a golf resort uh, or if you've stolen a, a loaf of bread or sold, sold cigarettes by the individual one, you face death. Why is it, do you think, that our society singles out a, a nonviolent uh, political action and tries to bring such pressure to bear. Is, is it really just to stifle dissent? Well, you know, I, I recently re-listened to an interview on the Dick Cabot show. Um, I think it was 1965 with Dick Cabot, you know, who was a Yale-educated, uh, great, great host. I enjoyed watching his show when I was a kid. He had James Baldwin on the show. And Dick Cabot kind of gently probed Baldwin about the fact that the, uh, you know, the, the civil rights movement uh, 
took a very hard line against the police, didn't trust the police, said harsh things about the police, and Dick Cavett asked why. And James Baldwin responded by saying, the police are not here to protect my life. They're here to protect your property. The history of, of, and I don't call them law enforcement because that's not what they are. The history of the police in this country have been, the roles that they have played historically have been to crush the labor movement, to protect child labor, to 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 uh, enforce slavery, uh, to 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 stand in the to stand in the breach, stopping any movements for justice or peace. So the police uh, are the problem. The reason that we're calling for the well, I'm calling for the defunding of the police is because I know what the role of the police is. The role of the police is to to enforce the. Uh, uh, um, oppression of people of color to stop movements for justice uh, and to and to, to play a role that uh, basically uh, keeps keeps the uh, uh, people in power who have the money in power and uh, oppresses the rest of us so it's a shameful legacy of the police and uh, and it's it's a horrific legacy the police in the United States of America so uh, you know what's happening now in this country, uh, is that you know? There's always been this, uh, 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 you know, racism. Uh, black people have been oppressed by the police uh, ever since they were kidnapped and brought here. Native people have, and so this is just a continuation of, of the status quo, which is the legacy of the United States of America for the last, you know, 240 years. So there's nothing new here. It's just all going on, just as it always has gone. I will say this, Rick, and I, I have to say, uh, a lot of horrible things are coming to light now, and like you were saying, there's not really much of an anti-war movement now, despite the fact that the United States has been at war now since the end of 9-11, an endless war, which has no checks and balances to it at all, but there are some very, very hopeful things happening right now. I think the Black Lives Matter movement, the movement to defund the police, the, the, uh, the very, very heavily youth-led movement against, against global warming. Uh, there's some shifts taking place, and they're monumental. I think the Black Lives Matter movement and the Defund the Police movement are absolutely incredible rites of passage by, by this nation. I have not seen anything that has given me so much hope since the anti-war movement during Vietnam, or maybe the anti-nuclear movement in the 80s, which, you know, died down and, and basically withered away. But I'm just hoping that this movement can be sustained because it's, I mean, I picked up the local paper. I live in Raleigh, the Raleigh News and Observer. I've written quite a bit. I'm, you know, I'm a journalist. I've written quite a bit about the uh, overreach of police. And a lot of times, you know, my, my letters or my op-eds get heavily edited and my criticism of the police is really, is really uh, toned down. And... Here I was a few months ago picking up the Raleigh paper, and they had a, actually had an article from the local perspective, Raleigh, Durham, and Chapel Hill, where I live, you know, what they call the triangle, talking about defunding the police and what that meant. I would have never in my life ever imagined a mainstream newspaper in a big city in the United States having a serious article dealing with the thought of defunding the police. So, you know, now corporations have to do things like have Black Lives Matter signs and put it on their websites. I mean, 
there's a real, I mean, maybe a lot of the people are doing things because they don't want to take any chances of uh, being boycotted and so on. But nonetheless, the pressure being brought on, uh, on systemic racism and, and the systemic brutality of the police and the hor- horrible consequences of global warming are starting to uh, uh, produce some incredible activism in this country. So I'm, I'm going into prison feeling somewhat uh, hopeful and, 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 you know, praying that this, that this movement continues and that it grows because I personally don't believe we have any chance of stopping global warming until we stop war. The, the contributions of the Pentagon to global warming, and again, of course, the Pentagon won't reveal all of the pollution that it causes, but David, really, they are the number one reason why we have global warming is the, is the, uh, is the carbon footprint of the military. And many environmentalists don't say that. They don't talk about it. They give the Pentagon a free pass. But I think it's, my hope is that all of these movements that are coalescing around justice issues and peace are going to finally see that the war machine is one of our biggest problems when it comes to having justice in the world. And uh, so, like I said, I'm hopeful right now. Let me let me continue along that line just for a second, sir, and, and I appreciate so much the, your time. Um, you know, we have seen just a horrible, horrible march uh, toward uh, fascism and toward open abuse of human life on so many fronts with this Trump administration, abnegation of treaties. Um, do you see some reason for hope that we can get back to the Paris Accord or something better, that we can get back to treaties, that we can begin again to to bring nuclear weapons uh, to a safer place uh, and maybe even reduct, reducing. Uh, what's your thoughts for the, for the next, after the election? Um, are you hopeful that we can bring some of the law and order, some, some real work toward peace back to this country? Um, I'm not a person who puts a lot of, uh, a lot of stock in electoral politics. But like everybody else, I mean, the disaster of Donald Trump, uh, I, I hope that in two weeks we're going to see the back end of that and that, uh, that things are going to change, at least in the executive branch, and maybe there'll be some, you know, there'll be a victory in the Senate as well. I mean, certainly the recklessness of Donald Trump is unimaginable. I, I mean, like most progressive people, you know, I thought we bottomed out with Reagan in 1994. <laughs> And then came W. Bush for two terms, and you know when you thought it was you couldn't go any lower than that, uh, you know then we get Trump. So I mean I I I mean I can't imagine you know who are we going to elect next? Satan? I mean how how late can we go? It's just it's just uh, un- unimaginable. So like everybody else, I'm certainly hoping. I mean even the Revolutionary Communist Party is endorsing Biden. <laughs>
the progressives. How much he'll sincerely pursue any of that, you know, he's not going to stop fracking, he says. You know, he's, he's one of the reasons why when I go to prison, I don't get parole because he was part of the restructuring of the federal sentencing laws back in the 90s. He teamed up with Strom Thurmond to get rid of parole. Uh, he's always taken a hard line on on uh, crime. He's he's uh, you know he's he's not a progressive at all now. Whether or not he he becomes more progressive now, not, I guess I feel like he has no choice really. But uh, I I don't I don't put my hope in uh, in the executive branch of government now. I I do I have a congressman down here who uh, happens to be a pretty progressive guy, David Price. Another congressperson is congresswoman is just going to be elected uh, in November here in North Carolina in the Raleigh area. Deborah Ross, who are both progressive people who I like and I have relationships with them, and I'm not. I'm certainly I, I go to my congressman's office. I lobby. I do all those things that people claim that uh, that I don't do because I'm some kind of a, a lawless uh, <laughs> um, outsider. But the point is, I, I I don't ignore electoral politics, but I don't put a lot of a lot of stock in it. I think that what we have to do as a nation state is we have to bring about the change we want to see through our activism and our hard work. So that's that's my hope when it comes to that. And, um, you know, one of the things I said, uh, one of the things that I said in uh, in court, uh, every t- I, I, I had to appear, be- in this, act- this case took more than two years, two and a half years before it came to sentencing. And it'll be close to three years before I actually go to prison before it's over, but one of the things that I said, and we had two magistrates and a judge that we came before during the course of this, uh, this, uh, 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 you know, this this long journey that we've been on, and one of the things that I said was to all of my judges is that I don't come into this court claiming claiming to know the truth. Uh, in fact, I'll read you what I said to the judge this time. I said, as I have repeated in this courtroom before, I don't come before you today with any claims on the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth, so help me God. Yes, I am going to tell the truth, but I can't say for sure that my truth is God's truth. And in truth to me, God's truth is the only thing that matters. First, I want to say, my hope is to never be vindicated. I hope the world can survive the nuclear arms race and for global warming to turn out to be no big deal. I want our children and grandchildren to have a future with as much love, hope, and prosperity as most of you and I have enjoyed in our upbringings under first world circumstances. I want my efforts on April 4th, 2018 to essentially be viewed as misguided, foolish, and in vain. In essence, I want to be judged wrong, not just by the findings of this court, but by the world. For me to be to be a failure and a fool would be so much better than the calamity I fear for future generations if the King's Bay Plowshares message turns out to be the omen I fear it will become. That's what I told my judge. Well, that's that's eloquent, sir. In, in wrapping up, if you had a suggestion you could make to our listeners, what would you suggest that they do if they are getting more concerned about nuclear war, nuclear war weapons pro, uh, proliferation, how would you urge them to act, sir? Well, I mean, if you live anywhere in the vicinity of a military site, form a group and go out there and try to have at least a monthly presence at that site. Uh, in Raleigh here, we go to the federal building in downtown Raleigh. I've been doing it for 37 years now. On Wednesdays, the first Wednesday of the month, from from noon noon to one, 
uh, we always go and we, we hold placards against against uh, uh, nuclear weapons and we, we and we keep doing it month after month after month where people can see us in a public space. I think it's important to go to these places of war. And I'll tell a story because it's important to, a lot of times people don't think that their efforts, the efforts of one person can make a difference. At one time, I was pretty good friends with Philip Berrigan. I think Philip Berrigan, I know Philip Berrigan had more than 100 arrests. When he died in 2002, he had served more than 11 years of his life in prison or jail. But one time, when Phil got arrested at the Pentagon, and I've been arrested at the Pentagon seven times myself, but one time when Phil got arrested at the Pentagon, I thought to myself, this man was on the cover of Time magazine. He's one of the most important figures of peace in the 20th century in this nation. And he gets arrested at the Pentagon, and nobody comes. No journalists, the Washington Post doesn't come, no TV cameras are there. Phil Varrigan gets arrested in obscurity. Nobody knows who he is. The people walking into the Pentagon don't know who this man is, man is who is saying no to war. And I asked him, I said, Phil, why do you keep coming back here in relative obscurity, getting arrested over and over again at the Pentagon? And he said to me, we're their only access to the truth, Patrick. If we don't come here, they're going to think that there's unanimous support for what they do. And then I realized, of course, that Phil was prophetic, that he understood that somebody had to say no to the evil. And it was his job to do it because there were so few people willing to do it. So that's what I would urge people to do. Say no to the evil. Withdraw your consent to what our government is doing and withdraw it in a creative way, any way you can. But take a public stance against the insanity of the nuclear arms race. Take a public stance against the insanity of global warming. Take a public stance against the abuse and horrific treatment of people of color and Muslims in this country. Take a prophetic stance against putting children in cages who cross the border. Uh, when I go to a, to a rally for immigration reform, the first thing I say, the first thing I say to people is, uh, I want to apologize. My Irish immigrant grandparents sailed here on boats in the 1930s. And they got into New York City. They were able to, 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 become, to become, become citizens in this country. But every time a new wave of immigrants came, they wanted to close the doors behind them and not let any more immigrants come. And I want to apologize to you that the people who had to come here on boats and planes decided that the people who could walk here weren't allowed to come. And I, I just think we have to recognize so many basic, basic injustices that are occurring in our names. I mean, you know, uh, William Barr and Donald Trump have just, have just uh, uh, had, had seven executions in Terre Haute, Indiana, of federal inmates. That's all in our name. Yeah, I, I just think people got to take, take a stance against killing and take a stance against the, the... Well, here's an example I said in my sentencing statement, too. This year's um, War Appropriations Act, they call it Defense Appropriations Act, I call it the War Appropriations Act, which passed in the middle of this pandemic, okay? Now, the, the, the belief, the, 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 the uh, fantasy or the, you know, the, the false story that's narrative that's told in this country is that Democrats and Republicans have never been farther apart than they are now. Nobody's crossing the aisle. You know, there's, there's no unity in Washington. Well, the War Appropriations Act, which passed in the middle of the pandemic, 
$740 billion for one year, passed in the United States Senate, 86 to 14. Only nine Democrats, four Republicans, and Bernie opposed a $740 billion appropriation for war making. That means that only 16 people in the United States Senate were not did not sell their souls to the military-industrial complex. When, the, when, when companies like Boeing and Lockheed Martin make contributions to people running for the Senate, they always contribute money to both sides. Boeing and Lockheed Martin have no particular, uh, particular party preference. They will pay money to anybody who will vote for them. And that's why in the middle of a pandemic, a $740 billion appropriation for an absolutely waste of money a useless endeavor passes the Senate by such an absurd margin. So that goes to show you, it's not like it's not like voting to confirm a Supreme Court justice where it's a vote here or a vote there. The war machine gets all the money it wants. The Pentagon gets a free pass. We have to say no to that. Let me share a positive story with you just for a second. Uh, I I was uh, I got a low number. I went in and, and resisted in uh, the service. But a friend of mine, a few years after that, uh, we were talking, he, we worked for an architectural firm, and he said to me, you know, Rick, I come from a long line of military people. My father, my uncles, my grandparents, they were all in the military, and, and I got into ROTC, and I was at Columbia University in ROTC, and I was going to be graduating an officer. And he said, one day I'm sitting there in my ROTC class, and I'm doing an equation about how many troops I could get across a nuclear weapon bombed landscape and have them survive. And he said, suddenly it dawned on me, we were talking about human beings. He said, I resigned right then and left the ROTC. And I thought that was a really wonderful thing. Here, a man who'd been completely mesmerized by the war machine, by the march to death, and he suddenly realized he was doing a calculation about human lives, and it appalled him. Sir, I want to thank you so much, Mr. O'Neill, and I wish you Godspeed and, and, and the blessings that I know you have. Thank you so much for sharing your time with us. Rick, I'm honored to be here, and uh, I'll be happy. I, I, will, I will have uh, telephone access when I'm in prison. I'd be very happy to come on the show from, from my... Uh, from my prison, from my federal prison, if you're interested. Yes, sir. Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed, I will. Let's talk about that offline. Again, thank you, Mr. O'Neill. Godspeed. Thank you so much, Rick. God, Godspeed to you as well. Thank you, sir. Bye-bye. And that was amazing. That's some old school activism right there. Some of the stuff that I grew up with as a kid in the radical side of the Catholic Church. Uh-huh. There was one, believe it or not. All right. Coming up, Rick Spizak with another interview. Amazing. This is an activist who's in Florida who does disability rights. Faith Olivia Babas. Been on the show a couple of times. Uh, there's a little bit of muddiness in this audio. I'm trying to clean it up and, uh, we'll just do our best, but, uh, 
Here we go. Do I have the good fortune to speak to Miss Faith Babbitt? Yes, sorry about it. <laughs> that is wonderful. This is Rick Spizak, PNN. I wanted to call up and see how you're doing. Talk to you a little about some of the issues you've been raising so effectively on Facebook. And, uh, I don't know how effective it's been. But <laughs> well, if people don't communicate what's important, then idiots that are not paying attention won't have any chance of knowing what's really going on. So I have to applaud your desire to try to communicate with people who are quite obviously tone deaf. There, there's a lot of tone deafness going around right now. It's, this has been a rough news cycle for the disability community, that is for sure. You know, so many people are, to, to not put too clean a phrase on it, uh, ableist, and really don't think too much about uh, the disabled community unless they are personally related or somehow know someone who is. And can you help people understand just how particularly difficult this COVID experience has been, both in a health sense and as well in an economic sense? Faith, you have the floor. The mic is yours. Tell the truth. Well, I mean, COVID, of course, hit the disability community particularly hard. Um, A lot of people with disabilities still reside in institutional care. They're in nursing homes, they're in ALFs, they're in group homes, they're in ICFs. And these are the communities hit the hardest. I mean, they're in congregate care. Um, There isn't a way to socially distance when you need assistance with activities of daily living. And a lot of times we've seen that staff did not implement proper infection protection protocols um, in these facilities. And, you know, they got COVID and they spread it around to the residents. And a lot of people work at multiple facilities because um, they don't adequately pay staff who care for people with disabilities. Um, So many of them have two or three jobs, and so they're going around to two or three facilities um, and spreading COVID to all of the residents. Um, And so, you know, almost half of the people who have died in Florida are people with disabilities, and people don't think about the fact that, you know, people don't go into nursing homes just because of their age. They go into nursing homes because they have acquired disabilities as they have aged and they need assistance with activities of daily living, and that is what legally defines a disability. Um, So 100% of the people in nursing homes are people with disabilities, even though some of them may not identify as such. You know, according to statute, they are. Um, And, you know, we we didn't do proper testing um, until late in the game when this had already spread significantly throughout these facilities. We didn't consider people with intellectual and developmental disabilities that were in ICFs and group homes until like mid-summer to start testing there on a regular basis. Um, And nursing homes are still receiving federal assistance to purchase PPE and to purchase testing. The governor cut support off from the state for group homes and ICFs, um, but the federal government hasn't stepped in and given financial support to these facilities. Um, So some of them aren't testing regularly because they don't have the funds to do it. 
Um, so we've just kind of hung the disability community out to dry. Um, you know, a lot of people with disabilities have coexisting disabilities. So, you know, you may have someone that has a physical disability, but they also have an autoimmune disorder. Um, so they are far more susceptible to this. So when mask mandates aren't followed or, you know, they can't be enforced now, um, these are the people that are most vulnerable to that. And we keep hearing people telling people, we'll just stay home if you're vulnerable. Okay, this has been going on for six or seven months. Um, people have jobs and we're not absolved of financial responsibility just because we have a disability. We still have mortgages and we have to keep our lights on and we have to feed ourselves. Um, so that isn't something that is feasible to just stay home indefinitely so we don't contract COVID. And it really just shows the lack of empathy, I think, and compassion and just respect for our fellow human beings to not be willing to wear a mask to protect other people in case, you know, you're one of the many asymptomatic people that could go going around spreading this to people. Um, so the disability community has been hit really hard just by the fact that we don't have adequate um, home and community-based support services. We still have millions of people throughout the United States that reside in institutional care um, where this is spreading. Um, we're seeing a lot of problems that we already had exacerbated, particularly with voting. Um, you know, we, we have heard repeatedly about disenfranchisement of minority populations, um, felons' rights restorations, and those are very valid concerns. Absolutely, but nobody's talking about how we're disenfranchising disability voters um, as we're pushing vote by mail for people that have print disabilities who can't fill out a vote by mail ballot. Um, and, and Florida has an in-state statute that we are supposed to have accessible vote by mail. And that's been a statute for almost 20 years now, but Florida's never implemented it. And it took a lawsuit that not a whole lot of people really even paid attention to to get a pilot program for 2020 that five counties are participating in. Um, but what about the people in the other 62 counties? And supervised voting has been suspended in most areas. Some places it's been suspended by the supervisor of elections office. Some places the facilities are refusing to participate in supervised voting. Um, and this was never a perfect system before. It had a lot of flaws, like by people within the facility would have to request supervised voting of the administrator. So we're holding these people to a higher standard to be able to participate in the elections process to begin with. We're expecting them to do community organizing inside of nursing homes and ALFs. Um, we're talking about people that are 70, 80, 90 years old. Um, and then the administrators are kind of the gatekeepers of voting rights for the people who live here. Like it's up to them to request supervised voting of the supervisor of elections office. And they have the ability like they have done to say, no, we're, we're not participating. And so there hasn't been adequate measures put in place to say, yes, you have to do this, but here's the process for doing so safely. The state has just been just completely silent on this. And we have 4,000 or approximately 4,000 nursing homes and ALFs throughout the state of Florida. So we're talking about the disenfranchisement of tens of thousands of voters potentially in a state where sometimes elections come down to, you know, a few thousand or sometimes even a few hundred votes. And, and this type of disenfranchisement really can be election changing and 
no one seems to care a whole lot about that. And, and that's really disconcerting. You know, one one hears stories that in the planning for what you could laughably call the federal response to COVID, that there was an actual active consideration that nursing homes and the populations of the elderly, as well as the handicapped, uh, were an acceptable loss. That that no resources need to be applied, and oh well, they're old, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, never mind, no worries. Yeah, it's kind of the worst of ageism and ableism that is kind of coming out um, in the situation, and unfortunately, we're, we're seeing it on both sides. Um, sure, it seems sure. like the one thing both sides can agree on right now is that this population doesn't matter. It's disposable, and, and we don't care. Um, and that's not the greatest message to be sending to the disability community, particularly in an election year when we're talking about the largest voting minority in the United States. Um, and and they're kind of looking at both sides, going, I, I no longer know which side is the lesser of two evils. Um, it seems like there's the race to the bottom. I don't know who's winning that at all right now, but I know who's losing. And it is absolutely marginalized communities, um, African-American communities, the disability community, LGBTQ communities um, are kind of all being left out of a lot of these processes. And that, that's a big problem. Well, you know, obviously anyone who looks at the voting system as it is currently uh, in practice can can point out literally thousands and thousands and thousands of weak links from uh, the reduction in Texas to one uh, reception facility per county when those counties can be hundreds of miles across and restrictions we've all heard about, uh, you know, special shortened hours and fewer machines in Ohio. once upon a time, many people, I know myself included, thought that here in the Democratic Party, one found more humanist values, better respect for human life, for the disenfranchised. But that's not always the case. And I think you pointed out some weaknesses and some problems in Florida where the Florida Democratic Party has basically turned a deaf ear. Absolutely. Can you talk um, about about some of that experience? Sure. You know, so the disability community is, of course, looking at both sides. And on the right, we have people that want to roll back the ACA, um, just repeal it altogether, um, which hurts people with disabilities. Um, you know, lifetime caps, annual caps, pre-existing conditions, all of these things greatly impact people with disabilities. Um, ACA was never perfect for people with disabilities because a lot of times we have medical expenses that aren't covered by private insurance. But the ACA at least was kind of a step in the right direction and did allow some people with disabilities to enter the workforce, particularly in states that um, participated in Medicaid expansion to uncouple Social Security income, SSI, and Medicaid was a huge step. And we saw in a lot of states where this happened that people were applying just strictly for Medicaid um, and not for SSI. They didn't care about the cash benefits. They just wanted access to health care that they couldn't get. And I'm so sorry for the lawnmower. Of course, they took out. Um, That's okay. That's okay. Don't worry about it. (laughs) 
um, the, you know, they, they just wanted access to healthcare and specifically Medicaid because Medicaid covers a lot of things that private insurance won't, like um, home and community-based support services and durable medical equipment and all these other things that they can't get paid for through private insurance through their employer. Um, and, and so, you know, we saw a significant increase in employment in these states where that happened, like up to like 10%, which is huge. Um, so we have this going on on the right, but then on the left, we have things like straw bans, which really jeopardizes the health and safety of people with disabilities who need straws in order to stay hydrated. And in a state like Florida, where, you know, it's 100 degrees with 90% humidity in summer, it's hot. Um, and if someone doesn't have access to the simple little tube, you know, that's made of plastic, they're going to dehydrate and they're going to have heat strokes and um, the materials that were being recommended as substitutes um, don't necessarily work for everybody within the disability. Some of them are choking hazards and can cause people to break their teeth. And, um, and then the real problem with this conversation was that environmental activists particularly, you know, this was a democratic movement primarily, were telling people with disabilities what they thought would work for them instead of actually communicating with the disability community and listening to what the disability community was saying would work for them. And I think that's really a huge source of the problem. Um, you know, we still see a lot of misconceptions about disability on both sides that, you know, people with disabilities don't care about money. They just want a purpose in going to work. So that's okay if we only pay them 25 cents an hour. Um, let me tell you, the person with a disability, I care about money. Um, as I mentioned, we're not financially absolved from our responsibilities because of our disability. Um, people with disabilities don't want to live in abject poverty for their entire lives. Um, you know, they, they want nice things and to be able to have, to buy houses to begin with um, and have nicer houses and put stuff in them. And you can't do that when they're making, you know, 25 cents an hour, a dollar, two dollars an hour working at a sheltered workshop. Um, so, you know, th those misconceptions exist on the left just as much as they do on the right. Um, we kind of saw this morning with uh, Nancy Pelosi's press conference that she had with Representative Raskin um, wanting to create the commission on you know, presidential capacity, basically. And this is a real threat to the disability community. And some of the things that were said in that press conference were just unbelievably ableist. Like we heard um, Representative Pelosi say, well, we're not talking about judging someone's behavior. This is about a diagnosis. And the entire disability community just had their jaws drop because it absolutely should be about behavior. Fascism, white supremacy, racism, hate aren't disabilities. Um, and the fact that we're attributing the president's behavior to a perceived disability and then going to say, well, if you have this, this, this diagnosis, then you are not qualified to serve in the office of the presidency is really disturbing um, in the way that this could be weaponized down the road if this were to pass. And I think that raised a lot of red flags for people with disabilities who were solidly behind Biden. And now they're kind of backing up going, I don't know which side is worse. I don't know who I should be voting for. I don't know if I want to vote um, because we're kind of being attacked from both sides. Um, and that, that just sets a really dangerous precedent. And the fact that the left can't see that is 
disconcerting, it's problematic. This is probably one of the most ableist pieces of proposed legislation that we've seen in a while. Um, and the fact that it's coming from the Democrats who claim to care about disability rights, um, who have disability rights acknowledged in their platform, but their actions are speaking quite the opposite. Let me ask you another question. Um, many people, I'm afraid, thought that, well, once the ADA passed, everything's fine, problem solved, okay. Have you seen a fall off in even, uh, should we say, the desire to appear like ADA has been met? Or has it been enforced and is still uh, in practice to help the disabled community? Oh, this has not been enforced at all on either side. Um, you know, there are Democratic-run city commissions and county commissions that view the ADA as guidelines. Like, well, this is stuff that we're supposed to do, but we don't have to do it. Um, and people will file ADA complaints. Department of Justice takes a year to get back to them, if not longer, and then they get a letter saying, we're not going to take your case at this time. Um, so people with disabilities are kind of limited on what they can do in response to this, which is a limit that was placed on them in the ADA, um, and then it's not enforced by the departments that are responsible for its enforcement. Um, so this bill, while it was groundbreaking legislation at the time, that was 30 years ago. Um, it does have weaknesses. It does have failures. Um, Democrats want to take full credit for the ADA, which actually isn't true. This was a bipartisan bill. Um, there were just as many Republicans responsible for its drafting as there were Democrats. It was signed by a Republican president. But if you're going to take credit um, for something, then you take responsibility for its failures as well, and they're not doing that. When we, uh, when we look at the additional big pressure being put on the what we could call the medical infrastructure, uh, even though it's a for-profit structure which has its own glaring problems. Um, obviously, a disabled community who relies on regular access to medical care, to medical diagnoses, to medical testing, this has got to put a real crimp in their ability to even access medical care when we see hospital after hospital after hospital being packed jam full with highly infectious people who, as we know all too well, uh, often ignore medical advice when it comes to safety, masks, etc. How has this impacted access to medical care for the disabled community? Um, when, like you said, there's this jeopardy of even going into a healthcare facility right now. So a lot of people aren't going to doctor's appointments and getting labs done and all these things that they should be because they're afraid. But then we also have things like healthcare rationing that are going on and visitation restrictions when there are people with disabilities who need um, their caretaker or PCA to be able to come into the facility. And if it's due to an intellectual disability, they may need someone that can kind of plain language what medical professionals are saying to them so they can make an informed decision. Um, they may need kind of support with, you know, just getting a drink and using the restroom and they don't want to wait four hours for a nurse to come in after you push the button. Um, so it's very helpful for them to have that person in there to kind of meet those needs. 
Um, sometimes it's an anxiety issue um, for someone that may be on the autism spectrum or be otherwise neurodivergent who needs that support person there with them. So we're seeing the visitation bans that are discriminatory, um, healthcare rationing. Florida does not have a policy for how to distribute medical care when we have limited resources. Um, there was one that was started in 2011, but it was never passed, it never approved. It was just kind of a draft version that existed on the Department of Health's website, um, and, and it eventually got taken down. Um, there's a group of bioethicists at the University of Miami who was working on a draft, but then they were including ableist language in this. Um, so it's based on like SOFA scores, which are the scores used to determine um, whether where someone ranks on the transplant list if they need an organ transplant. But it was discriminating against people based on like their five-year outcomes, um, you know, for like cancer patients or people that may have like ALS or MS or MS or MD or Down syndrome whose lifespans tend to be shortened by virtue of their disability, um, but that doesn't mean that they're not going to be alive in five years. And so to just automatically bump their score um, strictly because of that diagnosis um, when it has nothing to do with COVID and, you know, whether or not they're going to be okay using a ventilator and, um, you know, there's people with disabilities who can recover, but it may take them a little longer. So the timeframes that we're putting on ventilators for, you know, if you're not ready to come off of it by X number of days, then we're going to take your vent away. Um, so a lot of these things are really terrifying for people with disabilities. There's been a lawsuit against a lot of states because of their healthcare rationing policy. Um, so we're seeing this as a problem in Florida, particularly when we had spikes and hospitals were starting to fill up. Um, but I mean, this is a problem nationally as well. Right. I, I heard this morning a statistic that said that there's only three beds available in intensive care in the entire state of Wisconsin. Uh, yeah. Um, let, let me ask you a, kind of a related question to your topic just a moment ago. You know, you talked about uh, access for people who who are in, in you know, dire, life-threatening need for support staff or support people. Um, is there no... Uh, special guideline for people who need uh, aid, who need uh, support, who need to have a family member. We, we've all heard stories about parents and children who, who because of the restrictions on what we might call normal visiting privileges, who've had to say goodbye to a loved one over the phone. Is there no uh, workaround been made to help out people who need support staff? Um, there has been, finally, but, I mean, it took filing complaints with HHS um, to get this kind of resolved, and Florida actually did amend its visitation policies as well. Um, and that with that. But people went through, like, two or three months where this was in place. And so, you know, how many people did die where they didn't have anybody, a family member with them, and they were scared and they didn't understand what was happening? Um, so the fact that, you know, they were kind of subjected to this for two to three months is, is you know, really tragic. Faith, let me let me ask you a question that's sort of far afield. Um, and it may not be something that you, goodness knows, you have enough to pay attention to. But, you know, it, it struck me, and we especially when we're talking about people who have trouble getting access, 
You know, many of us have been horrified at the caging of asylum seekers, that the, basically the imprisonment and the callous maltreatment of children. Has there, has, has there been any studies that have talked about handicapped folks or disabled folks who've been in custody through this horrendous jailing of, of all asylum seekers has there have you heard anything about that or is that like I said it's awfully far afield from your normal uh, your normal issues have you heard anything about that sort of thing um a little bit um, you know the the PNA network protection advocacy network um, has done some work on that with um, children who had disabilities who were in some of these facilities um, so because of access authority were allowed to go in um, and really were one of the few organizations that were allowed to go in um, to kind of assess those situations. Um, so the PME network does have you know, some information on that and has um, taken some actions with that. You know, the other problem that we're hearing is about forced um, sterilization procedures right. in these facilities, right. which is very Really similar to what people with disabilities have gone through in this country. So that really hit us nerve and was a trigger for a lot of people with disabilities. It wasn't that long ago that we were doing forced sterilization procedures on the disability community. Those policies only um, were fully repealed in like the mid-70s. And this is actually still good case law. Like Buck versus Bell um, was, was, or Bell versus Buck was never actually overturned. Um, you know, there, there was a Supreme Court precedent for this, and that's never been revisited. So technically, that is still good case law for forced sterilization procedures for people with disabilities. And we, you know, it does still happen sometimes, definitely not on the level that it did, um, but we still see a lot of coercion um, with the disability community and sterilization procedures. Um, so it was really horrifying for the disability community um, who intersects with a lot of other marginalized communities to see this happening when there's still people alive that went through this um, and to kind of see our country revisiting things that we had repealed and we had rolled back um, because of really the eugenics aspect of this um, yeah. and that we still have that ingrained in us and are willing to do that to people that we consider less than and don't recognize their humanity. And I think that is really the root of the problem with a lot sure. of this sure. is just the lack of recognition of a human being as an equal human being. Faith, before we go, I do want to ask you, is there some way people can get in touch with you or get in touch with your organization so they can help uh, many of us uh, know plenty of people who have challenges like this and who face them and, you know, need help, need support. And those of us who have some humane sympathies uh, do want to help. Is there, how would you recommend people get involved in the disabled or able community? Um, well, you know, if they want to speak to me specifically, um, I do still have my former campaign page up on social media. Um, so I can be followed on Twitter. Um, that Olivia for Florida on Twitter is the handle on Facebook. Um, I think I have Olivia Bavis for Florida now. Um, so if you do a search for that, I should pop right up. 
Um, and there's a few different organizations that people can kind of reach out to if they feel like they're facing a healthcare discrimination issue. Um, every state has a protection advocacy organization in Florida, it's Disability Rights Florida. Um, typically, it is disability rights in your state, um, but the National Disability Rights Network will have a link to everybody's page um, on their website to locate the PNA there. Um, the SIL Network does a lot of advocacy work. Um, the local level, every county in every state has access to a center um, for independent living. Um, so if they look up, you know, their, their center for independent living, you should be able to find it and they provide a lot of resources. Um, a lot of them have equipment loan programs um, and, and like I said, do advocacy work on the local level. Um, so there's the patchwork of systems that are available, of course, for filing an ADA complaint. There's always Department of Justice that can be hit or miss as to whether they're going to get to your complaint. Um, but it is always the first step. Um, it's something anybody's going to ask you um, if you have a disability complaint and if you file the complaint um, with the feds um, for that appropriate issue. Um, and the Department of Justice website, actually, I will give them credit for that. It is actually very well organized. So they'll ask you what area um, you're, you're being discriminated in, whether that's education or employment or, you know, ac uh, architectural barriers, those kinds of things. Um, and it'll kind of direct you to the page that you need to go to to fill out a form or, or give you a phone number where you can call them. Um, so those are kind of the, the best resources, really, for people with disabilities. Well, Faith Babis, thank you so much for giving us your time and for helping to educate us. I, I can only say to you, please, my dear, stay safe and be well. We care about you, dear, and you're doing you're doing such important work. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Janine Moloff and the Justice Report. Technical difficulties tonight. I don't have Janine's usual opening, but I think we'll uh, make do with what we got. Hey, Janine. Hey, Brooke. Well, this week I'm going to talk about two things that look like they're not related, but they are. So I'm just going to start. You know, the GOP just loves using an old phrase, throwing the baby out with the bathwater. Just this week, Donald Trump signed a new executive order that will decimate any honest work done by a civil service employee. Now, this executive order eliminates due process safeguards for many civil workers, especially scientists and medical experts, by changing their classification to one where they, they'll be reduced to at-will employees who can be fired for any reason, no matter how petty. Now, the danger of this new executive order cannot be underestimated. Prior to this decision, Trump had instructed some of his titular heads of agencies, such as uh, Health and Human Service, to not only cherry-pick scientific data on COVID, for instance, that might hurt his re-election chances, but he demanded that access to the data be limited, in addition to various non-scientific personnel that are being encouraged to tamper with the data. Science relies on honest data and equally honest data analysis. Trump's attorneys know this, 
and yet none of them have spoken out about this data tampering. It constitutes fraud, and the timing of this executive order allows Trump and his, or his political employees to fire, in theory, any scientist or physician or engineer without any due process considerations. This new executive order doesn't merely destroy any reasonable career stability. It ensures that any honest assessment, whether it's scientific, medical, such as COVID, will basically become extinct along with the dodo. So the first part of this report will discuss how the new executive order works, and the second part will discuss the dangerous effect this executive order will have on any honest assessment, in particular as it relates to COVID. So this order was quietly signed, and it's Trump's declaration of war, as he calls it, against federal employees. And the order sets up his, quote, cronies to burrow into permanent jobs in the U.S. government, end quote, according to one critic. Now, this was in Common Dreams, published Friday, written by Julia Conley. So we have the members of the uh, Civil Service Union, American Federation of Government Employees, and they've been basically protesting this. Um, but this goes along with the right-wing conspiracy theorists that are constantly complaining about this alleged deep state. Apparently, science is part of the deep state. And so nobody, not many people paid attention. It got a little, you know, a little bit of traction in the um, corporate media, but mainly print, not on television. So this really does strip possibly hundreds of thousands of government employees of any job security. Well, the order was signed this past Wednesday, and this is about career federal employees. They can be, as I said, they can be fired with little or no cause. That's what at will means. They have no right to due process. In other words, their boss doesn't have to prove they actually broke the rules or did something wrong. Um, and there was one science journalist who won a Pulitzer who warned that this would really strip protections from the same kinds of career federal officials and experts that have challenged Trump's policies, uh, including Dr. Fauci and scientists who also studied the climate crisis. <laughs> Excuse me. A University of Texas professor, Donald L. Kettle, wrote in a publication called Government Executive, quote, examples of people whose jobs can no longer be protected include the order is vague enough that it, it, it's, it includes these other people. It's vague enough to allow the loss of job protections. Top officials could classify positions as, quote, having a confidential policy-determining, policy-making, or policy-advocating character. You've just described Dr. Fauci and his role through HHS and CDC. <clears throat> Excuse me. So these new employees would go into what's called Schedule F, and they would lose all protection, including against discrimination. They lose any protection through seniority against reassignments or relocation. And they would have no right to organize in a union or appeal personnel um, decisions. And again, Kettle called the order, quote, the biggest effort in history to sweep aside 140 years of federal policy promoting professional expertise in government would have a vast impact on government, on its workers, and on the public's trust in getting a fair and impartial shake from government programs, end quote. That's very true. You know, when you have top professionals, especially in the sciences, they're not going to go to a lower-paid government job and then have to worry that they're going to be fired if they tell the truth. They're just not. Richard Lowe, 
who is the senior policy counsel for the American Federation of Government Employees, which is the biggest union representing federal port workers, called the order, quote, a declaration of war on the civil service. This isn't the first time. Trump's been sneaking these executive orders in. In February, as reported again by Common Dream, uh, Trump issued a memo which allowed um, Defense Secretary Mark Esper to basically abolish any collective bargaining rights for DOD's 750,000 civilian workers. Now, the union sued in 2018, but once again, this EO, these EOs, make civil service agencies and people that work for them wage slaves to the president, and not what, and not what they, sh and, and so this is, this is really a, a detriment getting any honest advice, really. Um, furthermore, Loeb told the Washington Post, quote, this could be used to put a whole bunch of Trump loyalists in place, end quote. And even if Trump were to lose the election, there it would actually tie the hands of the next president. So what this is really saying is more unqualified and dishonest political appointees taking professional jobs for which they have no credential. Even the conservative Brookings Institute had some concerns. Uh, Tamara Kaufman Witties is a senior fellow at the Brookings Institute and also tweeted that in signing the order, quote, Trump is, quote, setting up his cronies to burrow into permanent jobs in the U.S. government. Um, Congressman Jerry Connolly, who is a Democrat, issued a statement saying, quote, um, this executive order is yet another attack on federal employees that addresses absolutely none of the issues that can hinder effective federal recruitment and hiring. It's a cheap ploy to let the Trump administration replace talent and acumen with failty and self-dealing. Civil, ser civil service career people, careerists, are vital to our country. They must be highly qualified. Their politics up till now have remained irrelevant. But Trump's now recreating the civil service in its own know-nothing confederacy of dunces image, where basically it's not what you know, but who you know. And that we already have seen that with COVID, that is disastrous. So Trump's been pushed. He's been setting the stage for this. In August, he tweeted that the deep state at the Food and Drug Administration was holding up the approval of COVID vaccines and treatments, and that they were doing so to harm his chances of being reelected. This isn't about an alleged deep state. It's about hiring the most competent and qualified people in a variety of specialized fields, okay? But once again, Trump doesn't care about the past. So we look at this a little further, and what we find is more of this issue. Now, the order, um, it gives agency heads the authority to reclassify and again, as I said before, it's confidential policy making, determining or advocating positions into the Schedule F. So in other words, it would no longer be job safe for a scientist or an engineer or a physician to give honest, an honest opinion, to produce honest data. So, you know, once again, um, this is something that, we have to consider here, all right, this action gives agencies the ability, you know, again, to put in political appointees, and that is never good. Um, Trump has done this before. 
Um, he did another one in 2018. It created a new schedule for future administrative law judges, and it gave agency heads for those ALJ, those administrative law judges, the ability to hire or fire them at will. So again, justice for an ALJ judge, at least the new ones anyway, um, is at the whim of political appointees. So again, Schedule F, this is, I, I immediately think of Dr. Fauci. Um, and this is truly very, very dangerous. Um, the timing is particularly suspicious, right? But really, when you look at these policy-making, policy-advocating confidential positions, it really moves those positions from what we have had up till now, a competitive civil service where anyone could apply, and they selected the most, most qualified people and transfer them into the accepted service where basically they can put in political appointees who don't necessarily have the credential. And you can't do that with this, especially with science. Um, and once again, Tony Reardon, who is the National Treasury Employees Union president, said, quote, Americans should ask themselves, why this White House is so determined to override, undermine, and get rid of veteran public servants who have dedicated their careers to serving the American people. Okay. Again, this is a way to, in my opinion, this is a way to silence professionals, especially people like Dr. Fauci, if Trump wins, or a way to make sure that a president, a Biden presidency can't get much done. All right. And that's what this is about this this move isn't about reclassifying clerical work it's about silencing top-notch professionals involved in top levels of policy advocation work like the centers for disease control all right um, the partnership for public service called this executive order said it's the ability to impact wide swaths of federal employees um, max steyer who's the president of the partnership for public service is quoted as saying Quote, being able to place any number of existing career positions into this new Schedule F not only blurs the line between politics and the neutral competency of the career civil service, it obliterates it. And that is true. Okay. So we have that going on. And, you know, again, the big problem with this, not only would they risk their jobs, just even daring to disagree a little bit, but positions that were formerly open to anyone who was qualified are now reserved for specific people who could change as new administrations come and go. Think somebody, think incompetent like Betsy DeVoe, who heads education even though she has zero credentials. Or Alex Azar, who heads Health and Human Services, even though Alex Azar has no medical or scientific credential either. He is an attorney who headed up Big Pharma Company. He is not qualified to lead HHS. This, as I said before, could result in a true, to borrow a quote, confederacy of dunces. Um, Jim Eisenman is a partner at Alden Law Group and a former MSPB executive director said that this reclassification uh, career, from career employees to political appointees may eliminate, quote, a significant check on the political process. Okay, and it's true. Um, and he went on to say, quote, the system is built for employees to feel secure in their jobs and be able to speak up. But without those appeal and due process rights, they won't speak up, end quote. And I'm looking straight at Dr. Fauci. 
okay? Um, so this is part of it. Now, we also look at the second part of this report, and here's how that new executive order could lead to more death from COVID and similar issues. And we're going to look at Trump's lethal screw-up, as Chris Walker called it, and wrote in Truth Out um, just this past week, okay? Now, there was a study, a new study released by researchers at Columbia University, and the study estimated that between, at the low point, 130,000 to 210,000 deaths from COVID in the U.S. could have been avoided. And this study placed most of the blame for those deaths, quote, on the abject failure of the Trump administration. Now, the range of those numbers, even at the lowest end, still accounts for more than half of reported deaths in the U.S. And as of this past Thursday afternoon, according to worldometers.info, um, more than 8.6 million Americans have tested positive for COVID, and about 228,000 have died from the virus. But the Columbia University report lead author is Dr. Erwin Redliner, and Dr. Redliner is also the founding director of the National Center for Disaster Preparedness at Columbia University. And yes, he was clear about expressing his personal views over who was responsible, reported in the Daily Beast. Redliner told the Daily Beast, quote, we believe that this was a monumental, lethal screw-up by an administration that didn't want to deal with reality, end quote. So the study... It compared the results of COVID deaths and just the entire COVID response, government response. They compared the U.S. to Japan, South Korea, Germany, France, Canada, and Australia. And they looked at several factors that led to the higher mortality rates in the U.S. The factors leading to higher mortality rates in the U.S., insufficient testing rates, delaying, delaying stay-at-home orders, um, the absolute lack of any sort of unified response by federal officials, and an utter failure to mandate, and you heard me, mandate masks and social distancing across the nation. Okay? A study was quoted as saying, quote, if the U.S. had followed Canadian policies and protocols, there might have been only 85,192 U.S. deaths, making more than 132,500 American deaths avoidable. If the U.S. response had mirrored that of Germany, the U.S. may have had only had 38,457 deaths, leaving 179,260 avoidable deaths. That is damning right there. And Redliner refused to apologize about his tone. He went on to be quoted saying, quote, usually academic publications are not so overtly political but this incredibly anti-science administration has caused an enormous tragedy in America. The fact that these deaths could have been avoided is a stunning realization, end quote. And Redliner added the president himself has become a super spreader, end quote. And he went on to say, quote, he has blood on his hands, end quote. And I agree. So it wasn't just this big study. The Kaiser Family Foundation, not exactly a bastion of liberal thought, issued a report with similar conclusions. And their report on the, uh, was on healthsystemtracker.org, health titled The Pandemic's Effect on the Widening Gap in Mortality Rate Between the U.S. and Peer Countries. And what it found was COVID is now, you better sit down for this one, COVID is now the third leading cause of death 
in the U.S. behind heart disease and cancer. That's how bad it is. COVID is not among the leading causes of death in several nations. It's not in Germany, Australia, or Japan. The virus doesn't even reach their top 10 causes of death. Now, Belgium does, but that has something to do with what they're, the way they're doing their testing, supposedly. The Kaiser Family Foundation also said the blame goes to Trump. There are failures to manage the pandemic from the very beginning, including the president's misleading and misinformative statements. In other words, his misleading statements and his lies. And they've been well documented, all right? And what they documented here, um, Trump has got, received pre- PDFs, presidential daily briefings on COVID. He received them in January and February. He downplayed the severity of the situation in February, saying we had nothing to worry about it. At the end of February, he said COVID was just a new hoax being used against him by his opponents. And this was confirmed by Trump himself in a series of recorded interviews that Trump willingly granted to Bob Woodward that were recorded. But then in March, the pressure was on, so he finally said, yeah, the pandemic's a national emergency. And he advised Americans to follow social distancing. But then Trump demanded states reopen their economies. So once again, he put his chances of reelection and his chance for Wall Street and for, to profit above everyone else's lives, above the, the safety and welfare of the American people. In fact, in mid-April, Trump was, tweet, was tweeting for citizens of multiple states to, quote, liberate themselves against these COVID regulations, okay, going against his own administration's guidelines. And that was an article on Truth Out, Truth Out titled Trump Tells States to Liberate Contradicting Own Administration's Guidance, okay? He tried to say he is immune to the virus, and we know that's crazy, but once again, this Columbia study is probably the most damning. Okay, it, it compares all these different states, and there is no excuse for this. The low end of 130,000 preventable deaths, the high end of over 200,000 deaths that are on that are, are Trump's fault because he refused to follow simple medical protocols. This is not rocket science. It is not hard to put on a mask in public. It is not hard to use social distancing. And it's not and it's not hard to follow these rules. It just isn't. But once again, they didn't. And the researchers from the Columbia study also was Redliner was quoted as saying, We should model ourselves on the best. We should be the best. And he's talking about the best uh, best practices, in other words. Best practice model. Redliner went on to say we have the resources, the economy, the scientific expertise to do this the right way. We're facing a lethal pandemic, and we had very misguided leadership that chose to berate the purveyors of masks and social distancing. The president himself became a super spreader. He has blood on his hands. Okay? The researchers, again, all those factors came into play. Insufficient testing, delayed lockouts, lack of a unified federal response. Failure to mandate non-medical interventions like masks and social distancing. Um, the researchers also wrote that American political leaders have shown, quote, a failure to model best practices. Okay, Scientific American and the New England Journal of Medicine also published editorials blaming Trump for the present out-of-control COVID crisis. 
And again, these are publications that rarely deal with politics, but they publish editorials that really put the blame on Trump and his administration. Okay, Red Leonard, one of the, the lead uh, researcher of the Columbia University study, went on to say, quote, there continues to be confusion, mismanagement, and dishonesty, and we're reaping the consequences of misconduct in office. Usually academic publications are not so overtly political, but this incredibly anti-science administration caused an enormous tragedy in America. The fact that these deaths could have been avoided is a stunning realization, end quote. Um, you know, once again, the death toll, according to a lot of experts, could actually be much higher because there were a lot of people that came down with a mysterious illness and they didn't, they didn't get access in the early days to testing. And that is another point of the mismanagement. Redliner also said that the end is nowhere in sight. He was quoted saying, quote, Americans have a bad case of pandemic fatigue. We want to get back to some semblance of normalcy, but we never did what we had to do to achieve that state. We've, we've delayed the return of normalcy and fallen into this web of dishonesty and opposing science that was conducted by this president. And to add more, more um, insult to injury, this past Friday morning, no, I'm sorry. Um, in late March, there were 16,703 deaths documented from COVID, according to John Hopkins University Medical School. In seven months, we're up to 228,000. I think that speaks for itself. Now we have over 228,000 COVID deaths we know of with the limited testing done, okay? All Trump can do is accuse doctors of greed. Jake Johnson reported in truth that in seven months, he just he Jake Johnson reported truth out today that Trump said the following at a campaign stop in Waukesha, last, Wisconsin, last night. They quote, "Doctors get more money, and hospitals make get more money." End quote. If they attribute the need to COVID, uh, some doctors had the following response: "We report that's how they curve. If you did your damn job, we wouldn't be reporting so many." And Dr. Nahid Vadilia from Boston University School of Medicine said, this apathy, utter willful disconnect from reality of the pain of this pandemic while the country spirals into what might be our worst surge yet, we cannot let this cruelty continue. And finally, a major virology expert, Dr. Eric Feigl-Ding tweeted, discussing, Trump tells his MAGA audience that frontline healthcare workers are claiming false COVID-19 diagnosis to profit from it. Pale. It's a well-known right-wing conspiracy theory. Push back between 1,600 to 1,700 healthcare workers have died. So now the conclusion. While I was watching corporate media such as CBS, NBC, and ABC News stupidly work to create balanced coverage by granting a false equivalency between Trump supporters and the rest of us, I noticed that those of us who denounced Trump were represented in a token manner as the on-air talent selected mild-mannered people to nicely disagree with the Trump ragers, especially in regards to COVID. I did not once see corporate media interview actual strong progressives regarding the Trump administration's criminal record, especially regarding open discussion of facts. No single topic more epitomizes Trump's war on facts and his criminal handling, criminal incompetence of the COVID crisis. I watched in abject disbelief as Trump supporters defended the very man who allowed this crisis to grow out of control. The excuse most often used to defend Trump was, quote, there wasn't much more he could do. Now, if this had been a measles outbreak or an AIDS crisis, people would have been told to get tested, quarantine, and contact trace. There's nothing Herculean about this regimen. 
This method of controlling pandemics is as old as civilization itself, but Trump refused to do this. Instead, Trump mocked those who wore masks and took the pandemic seriously. Trump implied that those who mask are weak and unpatriotic. This sophomoric, irresponsible behavior on Trump's part influenced his supporters to dismiss masking and social distancing as more fake news. What isn't fake is the growing fatality count. To date, some 228,000 Americans have died from COVID. The comprehensive fatality count is most likely higher, as some Americans have died from similar symptoms but didn't receive a COVID diagnostic test. Trump knew as early as late January that COVID was deadly. He admitted this to journalist Bob Woodward in a February 7th interview, which was part of a series of interviews Trump granted, which were recorded for accuracy. Trump also admitted that he knew COVID was airborne, as he unilaterally decided to downplay the danger. During this time period, Trump treated masking as a triviality, an action demanded by cowards seeking to take away our civil liberties. In short, Trump instigated this anti-mask trend that has caused the further spread, widespread of COVID. You cannot wipe the stain of blood from Donald Trump. Not only could he have done better, he should have been required by law to do better. 228,000 Americans did not have to die needlessly because Donald Trump cared more about Wall Street barons than the American public. 228,000 Americans did not have to die needlessly because Donald Trump cared more about punishing his political enemies, real and imagined, than he did the American public. And 228,000 Americans did not have to die needlessly because Donald Trump cared more about his vain need to be reelected than he cared about the American public. This is inexcusable. Come election day, everybody in Florida needs to vote this maniac out of office. The proof is there. Donald Trump had the information. He refused to do the responsible thing. How many of how many people in our listening audience know somebody who has died from COVID? How many more loved ones have to perish alone because Donald Trump won't do the responsible thing? He's incapable of it. So for God's sake, vote November 3rd as if your life depends on it because it does. Vote Trump out of office. And that's my report. Wow, Janine, great report as always. Thank you so much for bringing this information. It is super important uh, that uh, that we're aware of what is going on in the public health front and all of this mismanagement that is going into the COVID non-response. And of course, we're seeing that extra in Florida and we're and of course, it's a, it's all over the country because they have privatized the way that the data is uh, being collected. It's no longer with the CDC. And you've got this uh, company associated with uh, Palantir, which is uh, Peter Thiel's operation. Uh, It's all being done with government contracting out of, you know, the sunshine. You know, people can't really see what's going on. And they're doing that on purpose, And I want to say that with all of the things that we've been talking about, uh, especially with the COVID, what is the bottom line is major material conditions, okay? 
when you're talking about an illness and a and a desperately serious illness like COVID, which can last for the rest of your life, you can deal with that post-viral syndrome, which is literally the disability that I deal with is a post-viral syndrome. Uh, It's, it's, it's debilitating. You know, you're fine. You're fine. You're fine. You're fine. And then you're not, and then you're sick (laughs) and you don't know how long it's going to last. And uh, the kind of stuff that I deal with constantly is exactly the kind of stuff that is being produced with people who have long haul COVID. We have got to get our response together to preventing people from getting infected. And we have to be able to provide care and long term care for those who become chronic like myself. Janine, as always, thank you. I know that this was a really hard report to do. It is not pleasant information to dig into. And, you know, that's what we do here is we tend to have to look at the stuff and work with the stuff that no one else is willing to do. So, I mean, this is the good work. And thank you so much for doing that. Okay, guys, so we have gone super long, and I apologize for that. We've had a ton of technical difficulties tonight, um, but uh, but I think we've overcome them. I uh, have re-uploaded the audio with uh, some EQ, trying to fix some of the um, muddiness that we were getting through straight through Blog Talk Radio, and I... I really hope that this is uh, this is going to be this audio is higher quality than uh, than what I was catching live, and that is why we went a little bit long. So I'm just going to end it here. Me and Janine had a little bit of a conversation after her piece. It was mutual commiseration, and uh, and uh, you know more of this kind of tense. Uh, emotion that everyone is feeling and you know we have we have a new culture and we have a new social situation that we are starting to have to deal with and I think that for anybody who likes to watch trends for anybody who likes to uh, keep an eye on uh, uh, sociology essentially um, how we're doing as a society Right now, we are in rapid cultural transformation. Look up William Irving Thompson. It's a writer that did a lot with the idea of rapid uh, cultural transformation. He had a lot to say about it. And uh, very pertinent to what is going on right now. But, you know, I am going to leave it there. I... I don't want to commiserate too much for our audience because that's really not what we're here to do. What we're here to do is to bring you the information as the best we can and hopefully be offering news information and analysis that you're not getting anywhere else. And I feel like uh, like the interviews that Rick did tonight and the research that Janine did tonight are doing exactly that. And uh, that's it for me. We will see you next week. 
uh, happy Halloween to everybody. And uh, happy voting if you still haven't d mailed in your ballot or stood in line at the early voting sites. Uh, hop to it, guys. Go, go at it. Make it happen. Do that thing. And we'll see you next week.